Well, it's summer. Apparently, they, they tell me it's summer. Don't worry. The, the weather in Northern Ireland is very similar to Vancouver, so I feel very much at home. Uh, not quite sure about Ulster, uh, but back in Canada, we love our barbecues in the summer. We're, we're mad about barbecues. Everyone has one in their uh, back garden, and we like to have friends over, and it's a very social occasion. I noticed that Steve has a barbecue in the backyard of the manse, so perhaps your pastor is also a, a barbecue man as well. And uh, barbecues can be either really relaxing when you have folks over, or they are also an excellent way to prepare a quick meal in the summer without heating up uh, the kitchen with the oven. It must have been that uh, situation when uh, a young and uh, frazzled mother returned home from church on a Sunday and her two young boys were misbehaving. So she put some uh, hot dogs on the barbecue uh, and they kept fighting about this, that, and the other thing. And then just as the hot dogs were ready to be enjoyed, they started to fight about who would receive the first hot dog. They would fight about anything. And the mother had just had it at that point. She was reaching the end of a rope and she said, boys, do they not teach you anything in Sunday school? And she placed just one hot dog, the first one prepared in front of the two of them. And she said, if Jesus were here right now, he would say, brother, you take the first hot dog. And without missing a beat, one of the little boys reached in, grabbed it, took a bite, and said to his brother, you play Jesus. (laughs) I don't know about you, most barbecues are pleasant experiences. That one clearly is not. Nor is the Babylonian barbecue that we have a look at in today's reading. That reading was shared so beautifully with us today. Uh, How wonderful to get a sense of the different characters involved. Now, you may be coming in kind of cold to church this morning. Maybe you've been rushing from home or you've been having your coffee somewhere and you sit down and we come to worship God and then this big, heavy Old Testament story goes plunk right in the middle of our worship time. So I think it's important to to put it in its context a little bit, to get a sense of of where the story falls in God's word and story of salvation. So it's up to us, I suppose, how far we want to dial it back, but uh, being good Presbyterians, why don't we start with Moses and the burning bush? Does that sound like a good place to start? Burning yet not consumed, as we like to say. So you have uh, Moses and Aaron, and of course they go at God's bidding to Egypt uh, to liberate the people of Israel. That leads to the parting of the Red Sea and horse and chariot of Egypt uh, thrown into the sea. Miriam sings and dances and they begin their long, long journey we call the Exodus. Some would say it would have been shorter than 40 years if the men had just stopped and asked for directions. But nevertheless, it's 40 years in the wilderness and they reach a point of crossing into the promised land. Uh, It really is incredible when you are in the country of Jordan, and maybe some of you have been there, when you stand on Mount Nebo and you look, you see the view, almost unchanged through the years, that Moses would have seen. And you realize when you stand on Mount Nebo just how close he was to the promised land. You can, to this day, you can see the Jordan River. You can see Jericho, the world's oldest inhabited city. You can see it all from Mount Nebo. 
It would be something like standing at the top of Victoria Square in the viewing area and looking over at Harlan and Wolf and seeing uh, the two cranes. You can see it as just crystal clear. But of course, God was clear with Moses. He would not enter the promised land, so that falls to Joshua. They move into the promised land. Of course, there are some others already living there, and there's conflict. Uh, The tribes settle down, and God appoints judges over the people of Israel. And, you know, some judges are better than other. Gideon was a fairly decent judge overall, and... uh, You know, there was maybe a few others that weren't. But overall, we have this period of the judges. And then the people of Israel, they look around and they say to each other, why are we the only people without a king? Well, we we want a king. What's the matter with us? And it breaks God's heart. God says, I'm your king. You don't need an earthly king. I'm your king. But almost like that parable last week, the father dividing the inheritance and sending the prodigal off, knowing that it wasn't the right thing for him to do. God provides for his children a king. And as you know from your scripture studies, Saul was not a great king. And so David is anointed. But then there is this period, this period of joy and incredible uh, prosperity, you know, roughly somewhere around uh, the year 1000 to 900, just roughly in that uh, area BC, we have David and we have Solomon and we have prosperity and growth, and then things start to fall apart. The one kingdom breaks into two the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And God, as covenant maker, reveals himself to be not only covenant maker, but covenant keeper. For when the people go astray, he calls them back again and again through the prophets, that they might return to a relationship with him. But they don't pay attention. And so what happens is what God predicts and what God warns. In the year 722 BC, the Assyrian army sweeps into the northern kingdom and defeats it. Now you'd think if you were in Jerusalem, you'd pay some attention to that and change your ways. But things go on unchecked. And then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from today's story rolls into town with his Babylonian army and conquers Jerusalem. Something unthinkable in the days of David and Solomon. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a wise guy. And the Babylonian Empire had a pretty efficient system of conquering people. When they would conquer a territory, they would skim off the top of society. They'd take the best and the brightest in the political world, in the religious world, in the military world, And they would take them back to Babylon to feed the empire. And so the exiles go into Babylon. Folks like Daniel, that the book is named for. Folks like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. 
or as an elder on one of my former sessions who as a real estate agent called them my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. And these folks go to Babylon and they are not, if you have an impression, if you have an impression of the people of Israel in Babylon, like in Egypt, right? Think kind of Prince of Egypt days with the taskmasters and the whips and that kind of thing. That's not entirely a fair image because they took the best and the brightest back to Babylon to serve the empire. So what actually happens is a lot of these young guys get put through King Nebuchadnezzar's MBA program and go to work in the administration of the empire. That's what happens here. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego would be almost like what we would call in Canada a deputy cabinet minister. They are in the administration and they are holding uh, immense power over others. Now, you know what happens when you're given power and responsibility and others don't have it. The sin of jealousy kicks in. And there are some folks in Babylon who say, why, why are these foreigners, quote-unquote, getting all of this power and prestige and we're not? And so they start to sow seeds of dissent as they see some of these folks brought from Israel rise in positions of authority and power. We come to today's story where Nebuchadnezzar decides to build um, a tower, a monument, and have people worship this idol. It was ten times higher than it was wide. I, I picture it almost something like Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, or in Canada we have the, the Brock Monument, which is a similar kind of thing from the War of 1812 in the Niagara region. And he gets people assembled and they have to bow down and worship. And this is where the story gets interesting. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, taken probably as boys from Israel and raised up in a different culture, have not forgotten Yahweh, their God. And so they remember the teaching of their elders when they were young they remember that they cannot worship idols. It breaks one of the commandments, and they refuse. And they are hauled before Nebuchadnezzar, who gives them a second chance. He doesn't want to lose some of his brightest folks in administration. Just give a little. Just bend down a bit and worship this idol, and you'll keep your jobs and all of your power and perks and so forth. And they refuse. And as we heard so beautifully read for us, they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And there appears not three of them, but a fourth shadowy figure who has the appearance that is, some would say, an angel, a godlike figure in the furnace with them. You've heard the story today, but can you think back there are some adult converts, no doubt, in the congregation. We love adult converts in our church. But a lot of us are kind of cradle to grave in the Reformed tradition. Can, can you think of the earliest time in your life when you heard this story? I was in a, a crowded Sunday school room in the basement of our church in Winnipeg back in the days when Sunday school teachers would use those uh, flannel graphs. Do you remember those? They would stick the characters on and that kind of thing. 
and, and they must have gone all out. The teacher must have stayed up late cutting all the different characters, and the fiery furnace looked terrifying to me. And then she would take the characters and one by one put them in the furnace, and her eyes were as big as saucers waiting to see what would happen in this story. And as a child, I took away from this story the amazing gift of God's protection. Here were three faithful followers of God who were protected in a time of crisis. And I have no doubt that sitting in the pews of Fitzroy Church today, there are stories of times in your life, especially when we view our lives through the rearview mirror looking backwards over the years, where you can say God has literally protected you in a moment of crisis. Years ago when I was coming up for my final ordination interviews, you kind of sweated out for a few hours before a panel of elders. And, uh, you know, I was fully prepared. I was ready for my questions on the doctrine of election, uh, hoping they weren't going to ask about double predestination. But, you know, you get all your doctrine all lined up, ready to go, Westminster Confession, all ready to go. But then there were kind of the the what-if scenario questions, and those ones terrified me more. And there was... um, I wouldn't say he was the most cheerful retired minister uh, on the interview panel, and he sat with his arms crossed the entire time as I was answering, and then finally he asked his question. Uh, He said, Mr. Lockhart, can you tell me a story about a time in your life when you were in danger and how God saved you? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. And I was trying to think, like, what, what's the logic behind that question? What is he actually trying to get at? A friend of mine who manages a restaurant in Canada always asks potential servers questions like, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Just to get a sense of their personality. I thought, it, what was he doing here? Is he trying to get a sense of my personality or, or what? And then it dawned on me. And I told a story of uh, when I was in Africa with the church in uh, the northwest of Kenya, serving a a camp called Kakuma, refugee camp, and it was the time during the the civil war in South Sudan, so we were also working with the Sudanese Council of Churches and would be back and cross the border from time to time. And uh, South Sudan, at the time, it's not a lot better now, but it was um, essentially a, a lawless state. And we were traveling in a vehicle, and uh, our driver uh, didn't anticipate a turn well and ended up crashing through a fence uh, where the cattle were kept. And, of course, in that community, uh, the cattle were the most valuable things. And before we knew it, the, uh, the vehicle was surrounded by angry townspeople uh, who started beating on the vehicle and trying to pull us out through the windows And I remember uh, being in the back of the group, and all we knew how to do in that moment was to pray. And so we began to pray. And after a couple of minutes, the the crowd quieted down, and they backed away from the vehicle. And the crowd parted, and in the distance, we could see two village elders slowly making their way towards these young people. And they negotiated with our driver, and we offered to pay for the damaged fence, and we are allowed to go on our way. And as I was sitting in that ordination room, I was 
thinking of the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and how in the fiery furnace, as we all have fiery furnace moments in our lives, God's protection matters. But over the years, as I have read this story and shared it in Bible studies and so forth, it's almost as if, as God has taken me further in my discipleship, I can't say that this is just a story of God's protection. Because all of our lives bear testimony to tragic loss and suffering and the inevitable questions of where was God in that moment. But even more than that, it's not just a story of God's protection. But when you go back through and you read the story, what happens when King Nebuchadnezzar gives them their final out to bow and to worship the idol, and they say no? They essentially decree to the most powerful man on the planet at that time that it doesn't matter whether they live or whether they die. Their trust is in the Lord. And when I think of that image of the fiery furnace and that fourth person in the flames, I wonder if this is just a story about God's protection. Or could it also be a story about God's presence in the times in our life when we are called to be a faithful witness? This is also a political story. The most powerful political leader on the planet at the time demanding that people worship an idol. Perhaps it's even an image of him. Some of the teaching I do in Canada, the students don't always find it the most exciting course. I try and liven it up a little bit, but it's difficult when you teach a course with the uh, title Creeds and Confessions of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. That's a bit of a snoozer course for some students. And of course, we go through the ancient creeds, which are wonderful to study. And then with every other Presbyterian body in the world, we go through the Westminster Confession of Faith. But our denomination has two other subordinate standards. One is wonderful. It's called Living Faith. And it was produced in 1998, and it's a contemporary confession of faith, a solid orthodox document of Christian faith. But there was one before that, that it's rare to find a ruling elder on any session in Canada that knows about it. And if we're honest, there are a lot of teaching elders that don't even know about it, or maybe they looked at it once in seminary. And it was produced in 1955. It's called the Declaration of Faith Concerning Church and Nation. The reason that document exists in Canada is because of the Second World War, specifically about fascism in the 30s and the Barman Declaration of 1934. There were a number of Reformed Christians that realized the Westminster Confession of Faith was a little fuzzy on what our role is in civil society. And so after Canadians went through the 30s watching fascism in Europe, the 40s and the Second World War, 
there was a need to clarify what is our role regarding the Nebuchadnezzars of this world. This story today is a political story as well as a story of faith. Now, in Canada, we've just gone through a a season of uh, Canada Day celebrations, our national holiday. And uh, in America, of course, there is uh, Independence Day on July the 4th. And as Canadians looking at America, we love our American neighbors and our heart breaks for so much of the political dimension in that country at this time. The race relations issue, the upcoming national election, the the gun control debate that seems to go nowhere. And I'm mindful preaching here today that we're on the cusp of a, a week that is emotionally charged in this province. And as a Canadian, even one of Ulster heritage, I would not comment on the week ahead for you, but you know all of the dimensions at stake. For me to do so would be inappropriate. It would be like uh, so often in North America, people will go to uh, the Holy Land for a week or a month and uh, come up with uh, very simple solutions on peace in the Middle East and so forth. Or it would be like someone from Europe coming to Canada and spending a few days and helping us figure out how to relate to our First Nations or indigenous people that we have treated so poorly over the years. The point is that the gospel is always in relationship and often conflict with the culture that it encounters. A great scholar named Daryl Guter is our senior fellow in residence uh, at St. Andrew's Hall. He's just retired from Princeton. And he makes the argument in his mission uh, book, The Continuing Conversion of the Church, that the gospel needs to be translated into any new culture that it encounters. That's reduction, as he calls it. You have to be able to explain the significance of what God accomplished through empty cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ in wherever you go in the world. Missionaries have been doing this forever. But there is a danger, what he calls not reduction, but reductionism, where instead of the gospel converting the culture, the culture converts the gospel. What William Plaker, a great theologian in the States, would call the domestication of transcendence. And you look at a story like the one we have today from God's Word, and here were people who were living their faith in a foreign culture, and they refused to be converted by that culture. I can only speak of my own North American culture a place where in Canada we don't have Nebuchadnezzars necessarily, but there are all kinds of temptations to domesticate the gospel. A lot of the research and the writing that I do is on a culture of affluence in North America. The temptation that so many have now in the secular world that I pastor in and teach in, where it is entirely possible to be good without God for many people. In Vancouver, some folks are on their third or their fourth generation raised without any kind of religious knowledge or tradition. And so into that culture, 
Into that void flows individualism, secularity, consumerism, materialism. Some of the writing I was doing last year, I was telling a story of, uh, it was on the cover of our local newspaper. There was a, a woman who was driving on a local highway in Vancouver, and she was driving very slow, and she was weaving all over the highway. And so the police pulled her over and could smell alcohol in the car, and uh, as they're instructed to do, asked her to blow into a breathalyzer device to to test her alcohol blood level. And uh, she refused to do so, and she had an excuse. She said she could not purse her lips because she had just had Botox injections in her lips in Mexico the week before. So they couldn't do anything about that. They couldn't force it. She went to court in North Vancouver, and she got a letter from Dr. Botox in Mexico and the judge let her off. It's known by uh, lawyer friends of mine in Vancouver as the Botox defense now in Vancouver. Very next week, I was in my doctor's office uh, for my regular uh, annual checkup, and there was a big sign in his office, and it said, as of this date, Botox injections will be offered in this office. I like my physician. He's a good guy. I can tease him a little bit. So I pointed to the sign when I came in. I said, really? Is that what public health care has come to in this age? Botox injections? And he shot right back with a little wink. And he said, well, you know how it is. People like a little cosmetic enhancement, a bit of a nip and tuck here and so forth. Maybe it's the same in your business, reverend. Ouch. I began to think about my pastoral leadership and the people that I serve in Vancouver, I began to wonder, what if the gospel is domesticated by a culture of affluence and by materialism, that people see Christianity as simply a cosmetic enhancement on an already pretty decent life? That same week, I went to visit someone in hospital and had the opposite experience, I was waved by a harried nurse at the triage desk towards the cardiac assessment unit, and there was a member of our church sitting on uh, the plastic sheets and the little hospital gown, and he was uh, dealing with the results of what was presumed to be a heart attack. I asked him how he was doing, and he looked very serious. And he described to me the surgery that would be required immediately, and he said, "I, I need bypass in order to save my life. And he opened his hands and he said, Pastor, will you pray with me? I thought how different that image, Botox versus bypass. Could it be that we find a way to proclaim the gospel that says it is Christ alone who bypasses our sin? And in our faithful witness in the world, whatever context you find yourself in, whether it's a Babylonian barbecue, whether it's living and working here in Ulster or in Canada, that we would trust that the same God who not only saved Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego with his power, but perhaps for them in that fiery furnace moment, more importantly, was a presence to them is here with us now 
in your workplace, in your homes, in the community, and the uncertain events of the days ahead. Just like the tradition of our faith that says, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. May that God, the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you, protect you, save you now and always. Let us pray. Father, into an uncertain future, we place our lives in your certain hands, asking for grace and strength to remain true to you all the days of our life. Would you bless us as we go out now from your house of worship to be a blessing to others, a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.